Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have three co-hosts. My name, of course, is Sean of Kunitz. We have our friend Mary Haddix Hermans and my friend Hunter Sagona. Hunter, Mary, and I believe that there are many people that have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, dot, 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 and everything in between. Peter Ilya Tchaikovsky, Symphony No. 4 in F minor, Opus 36, was written in between 1877 and 1878. Its first performance was a Russian Musical Society concert in Moscow on February 22, 1878, with Nikolai Rubinstein as conductor. In Middle Europe, it sometimes receives the nickname Fatu, or Fate. And without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Please enjoy. All right, and we're back, and we're so excited to talk about some Tchaikovsky 4. Um, we've been away for a while about Tchaikovsky, and I bothered these guys. I was like, please, can we do it? And they were like, okay. So we're talking about the fourth symphony, and the fourth symphony is in F minor, and this is his opus 36. It's also interesting that um, I'm not sure if you all noticed, but on the top of the page, Tchaikovsky wrote Amon, Meilleur, Ami, which uh, Hunter is in French, uh, not Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. And interestingly enough, uh, that in French means to my closest friend. And I had to do a little bit of research into that. And that uh, that dedication, y'all, is actually towards his patron and his closest friend. Oh. His name being Nazetka von Meck. And interestingly enough, you know, we talk about this, this piece being entitled Fate. Um, and we talk a little bit about, like, the love that Tchaikovsky had. Um, and I also think it's also a little about um, Tchaikovsky's, uh, we haven't talked about this at length yet, but maybe we'll talk about it today with uh, Tchaikovsky being in the closet and be also being Russian and feeling a little bit of the two, not wanting to share his um, homosexuality with anybody. Um, but I think it's really important because he was also trying to fight that too. And you kind of hear some of that in this symphony, which is really important. So, Mary, without any further ado, without adding any more uh, sadness to the beginning of this piece, why don't you throw it? I'm gonna throw it over to you. What do you got? Well, um, well, for those of you that don't know, um, hi, I'm a horn player, and uh, Chaika Four is um, one of our biggest excerpts in the repertoire. It's regularly asked, um, and it ends up in like the top ten most asked. So, the biggest excerpt they uh, and when I say excerpts, um, when you audition for a professional orchestra, you, you go in front of a panel. Sometimes um, they'll ask you to play in a section, but often it's it's alone and you play excerpts from major works. And so for us, Chike 4 is, is a really big one. And this opening, um, the excerpt is about, uh, it's up until the, the moderato con anima, um, basically. And um, I think some words that I associate with this are um bold mm. and forward and so to you think yeah to a giant fortissimo um solo solely horn and bassoon right at the beginning mm. um and the way that they coach us to like 
my teachers have coached me to play this. It is meant to be not necessarily in your face, but bold in a sense of more like gravity, like natural forces, hmm. which in a sense where we're talking about, um, like you can relate it to time really well as if, um, it's March on Dante Sostenuto. And so that's more of a maestoso kind of feeling. Um, there's a, a blocky nature to it in some ways. And so, um, this excerpt, uh, especially with the dotted rhythms, bumping, ba um, there's a lot of work that goes into subdivision. And so really feeling your downbeats is, is a really important thing here. And I think that's kind of what Tchaikovsky was getting at. Um, I think you could see this opening in a lot of different ways because it is called the, you know, sometimes called the fate symphony from him. Um, so uh, I've had friends liken this excerpt to... Um, the the banging doors of hell in mm. some ways which you know maybe would be a, a horn joke more than anybody else but um i i i'd like to just look at the orchestration for a little bit because we only have four bars uh, of just horns um <coughs> and there's a lot of horn in this one guys so sorry about that but mary um, remind me to ask you a question about the actual performance of it totally will yeah um but I just wanted to note, um, so on the second page of the score, after um, um, we add in voices, Tchaikovsky added in, especially um, trombones and tubas, often um, syncopating. So they enter on the end of beats and it, it gives it all this forward motion, but it's still on Dante Sostenuto. And so um, at at this point, um, I think it's, is it eight full bars, five, six, uh, six full bars in, sorry. Um, we trade to sustains in the horns and low brass and bassoons, and then the woodwinds and the trumpets take over this, this call. And I just love staring in the score at the way he has written some of these sustained chords. It's, it's the biggest blockiest sound, um, that I can imagine. Um, and when it comes to Russian composers, I think Tchaikovsky does it best in terms of, um, how can I say this? Um, the bold nature that he's really getting at, I, I think he does do it best. And this is his first symphony where we're, we're starting to see some of this pent up. Um, I think there's some angst to it um, that, and we'll get into it as Sean had mentioned, um, his uh, Tchaikovsky's closetedness in some ways. So I, I think there's a lot of, things to be drawn from that but you can pull it all from this beginning section um it's really neat and um a lot of people differ when it comes to tempo whether it should sit back or if it should push forward and obviously i i think i fall under the the prior of those two i like for it to to sit down in its time um but that's a personal thing so hunter what was your question my question was, you know, it, I guess it, go, it speaks with the blockiness of it that you mentioned. Um, my question is that is the, the more difficult part as a horn player for this opening um, 
the sustaining of the long tones rep repetitiously or is it the having to keep up with the syncopated because it's relatively i mean it's it's not fast but the syncopation makes it so that there's not a lot of value to each note so therefore you have to move it quickly and I've, and for those who don't know you know tonguing on a on a horn instrument is is much different than tonguing on a woodwind instrument and sometimes the stoppage of that sound makes it a little more difficult. So I'm just curious whether you think that's a more of a breath issue or do you think it's more of a technical tonguing issue? Oh, well, I, I have two separate answers to that. So the first one, um, I'll tackle tonguing first. Articulation is something, I mean, obviously due to the rhythms that are in this opening, mm -hmm. articulation is something that people listen for when this is on the audition. Um, because to, to do the multiple tonguing, and you, you're talking about syncopation in some ways, my where my philosophy is that we we sit down in the time more um then those syncopated the notes off of the beat should not be as weighted as down beats so the first note mm -hmm. would be weighted a little bit heavier d da, 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 d um in a sense um and i hope that the audio can pick up the difference <laughs> but um <laughs> i i think articulation um is I, most horn players that I meet, we all talk about articulation like it's frustrating. So I think okay. if you're going to flip a coin, most people struggle with that more than the sustains. But I will say that playing the opening and then doing the sustains, um, mm -hmm. I think you just have to make sure that you're breathing together with the section for it to really work so you can pace it well. Um, but I, I think more so than the length of notes, the, the difficulty of this is um, twofold. It's tone-based, and uh, because of the color that Tchaikovsky wanted, it still needs to remain um, somewhat of a darker tone. And mm -hmm. where it changes registers so much, um, I, I think I'd put that over the sustains. Um, let me see. And then um, I just want to... This is the last thing I'll say about the opening, and then you all can take whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the ending of the opening section after A, mm -hmm. um, we have uh, another just true horn solely, no bassoons this time. And that four bars is notorious um, for pitch. And I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes in auditions, they'll ask you to, to come in and play in a section. This excerpt is one of... Um, the most asked 2D like section based auditions. So um, they might bring in the principal horn of the audition or of the orchestra if you're auditioning for second and have you play second horn to them in the audition. Um, those four bars with the E flats? Um, the whole excerpt. But those four bars with the E flats, um, you've been going and going and going. And then at that point, to have to do it without any of the rest of the ensemble supporting you, that's a really mm -hmm. scary entrance in general. And just keeping it <laughs> controlled as you go from loud all the way to like niente at the end of it, mm -hmm. basically. So, but obviously, I love this opening and I've talked about it enough. You want to <laughs> sort of say anything about it? <laughs> Sean, did you have something? Let's see if I got anything. I think I got a couple of things I want to say. Sure. Um, loudest beginning of a movement in his six work collection. Oh, that's an important point. Yeah. I think which is really important. All of the other 
aspects of the beginning of his symphonies are pretty quiet. Five, six starts pretty quiet. Um, two is pretty quiet. One starts very quiet. Um, in Yoshua Hunter, if you remember when we talked about Winter uh, Daydreams, we talked about the, the opening in, in G minor. Um, it's just feeling like this kind of delicate piece. And I feel like a lot of his pieces start this way, but one, it almost felt like Mary is totally right in that he wanted to start this piece guns a blazing. And it feels like there is just no room for hesitation or error in this first section. Um, it's so exposed. And, there's not. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's pretty exposed. And I was going to ask Mary, if you want to give me a quick thought about the F to C in measure six. Uh, I'm sorry. One more time. The concert F to C in Measure Six. Oh, measure uh, uh, yeah. Is that is that is that something that kind of gets your blood pumping a little bit? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um. That. Uh. As we add in the voices down, it just gets so thick and dense. Right. Yeah. I'd love to start it off and then just watch it build. Right. You know, and it also really sets up the the fate motive, so that we know exactly how important this thing is. Uh, comes back, I'm going to say, seven or eight times in this movement. Um, just because it just, you know, in almost in a way, that idea of fate is always lurking behind us. And we really don't know how to explain it. But we're always thinking about it and it's always hovering above us. So I think that in a way, metaphorically and almost uh, mentally, he's always thinking about it. But when it comes up, it's just kind of like in his face. It's like shining like a like a hot red mercury sun, you know? So it kind of gets in our way and think about that. And, you know, what one a beautiful analogy. Thing, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and in that way, um, you know, like Mary said, yes, I think the, I think his, like I, like I, like I elaborate too much about, and I talk about too much is I love his transitions. His transitions want to make me fall in love with him. And I do. But the one thing that he does really well is the last two notes, the E-flat and the D, both played in the clarinet and the bassoon, then add in later to be the beginning of the next section, which is um, unbelievably um, crazy. Um, Hunter, any thoughts that you have about this intro? Um, I mean, specifically about the intro. Yeah. Like that, are we talking about like the first two pages? Yeah, I would say the first three pages. All right, well, if we're, if we're extending to the third page, then right. um, yeah, then I would say the first thing I noted was that you know it goes to moderato con anima, and it's it says in the movement of of a waltz, but it, mm. the waltz feeling is is a little bit different. But anyway, my point being is that it switches to nine eight time, and the horns have this eighth note plus eighth rest kind of. I think it's two eighth notes. Where where is it? Yeah, it's, yeah, you have it's like an, a solo. It's it's a second horn solo. It's kind of funny. They don't yeah, it's like a odd thing to sort of just throw in there, right? And now all of a sudden, the movement has been given to the strings, which I think really changes a lot of the the not the tone, but the um, the ambiance of the piece. Mm -hmm. I'll say, for lack of a better term, um, because you've dropped from like a, a wind supported sound now to this very string heavy sound, which is often I think more Tchaikovsky sounding because you know, a lot of his stuff with um, a lot of his ballet stuff is it's a lot of strings. So it's yeah. just, I, I just noted that. 
Yeah, he shifts the curtain really well, doesn't he? He does, and it feels very natural. It doesn't feel like a jarring sense. It seems like it's something he should be doing. And I think that, yeah. again, sorry, Mary, I think that really adds to the whole identity of his great transitions and Agreed. that he's able to then set up the next scene really well into that waltz, that messed up waltz that Hunter was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so if you all don't mind, we're going to move into the next section. Yeah. And, and something that's really cool, I'll, I'll kind of do my, my quick little spiel, and I, what I think is really cool, which is about this section, which is it's wistful, definitely hesitant, and nothing like the first opening section at all. Um, and one of the things that I found so fascinating about this movement is it feels very off-kilter. You never really can tell where one, two, or three is sometimes, especially with that dotted eighth, sixteenth rhythm. Which I think is actually really cool. It, it kind of keeps the, the listener on edge really well. And something we don't really hear a lot, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but the strings adding in rhythm and percussion something you never really hear that often where the strings have it for a couple, let's say eight bars, the next mm -hmm. eight to 10, almost 16 bars is where the, the strings play the background figure towards the flutes, which I guess is, is pretty normal, but you don't really see the strings playing percussionist figure figures, you know? So that kind of stuck out to me a little bit. And something that's just so interesting is obviously something that we can definitely tell this is tchaikovsky is the dealing with repetition with rhythms and i think that's just so important because that rhythm bumpy ba bumpy ba bump is is so repeated over and over and over again and recycled mm. all the way through until the fourth movement which i think is really classic tchaikovsky if you want to know something that's him if you want to know exactly what he's doing that is immediately Tchaikovsky because he's repeating rhythms in between different instruments and sections and it's almost like a dialogue between characters it's it's so good and almost like a um almost feels like sentences almost like a little bit of a Sondheim but yeah uh, actually yeah. I want to add on to that a little bit I want to pose a little bit of a different interpretation because the way that you put it mm -hmm. it's it's not necessarily um there's no tension between the two and yeah. i think what tchaikovsky is is doing through his color shifts and his orchestrational choices as well as in like the idea of obscuring the downbeat in this this kind of messed up waltz as hunter put it i think mm. um or maybe it was sean no. but i think what he's really doing if we if we draw it all back to to fate you know, because he did knock down the door in the first measure. If we assume he's still going the same way, you can kind of see that he's trying to show that the the bells of fate ring no matter what happens, no matter what mm. happens to the beat. And by obscuring it while still having these repetitive rhythmic figures added about, it, mm -hmm. it reminds you every time that rhythmic figure comes around or there's percussive movement in repetition, it reminds you about the bells of fate tolling at in time, much like the beginning. Hmm. Hunter? No, that's, you know, I, I think when we opened and we, you know, we started talking about how this work 
in particular in terms of Tchaikovsky's, um, you know, the things he was trying to hide from the rest of Russia. You know, I think it since we're talking about bells, you know, bells are obviously a symbol of um, something that raises an alarm, something that draws attention to something. So I can't help but wonder if, you know, is this sort of his way of like trying to put himself out there um, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that would have been relatively safe to his own well-being? Because right. obviously it was illegal. I think it might still be illegal in Russia. And um, being someone born in the 1800s, being gay, especially having been suspected of being gay as well, like it wasn't just so much that we learn later in life. Okay, yeah, he was. It was it was a suspicion, which is why, you know, he he was so withdrawn of a person because he didn't want to draw that attention to himself. So how else could he get his message out there? Well, like a lot of artists, you put it in your work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said, and we're not going to get into five and six deeply. But yeah. when you when you think about the the contour of his six symphonies from a macro sense. The fourth is the peak. Five mm. is a little bit more subdued in a lot of ways, and six even more so. At least I believe that of his mm. six symphonies, this is the most bombastic, the most... Mm. Um, Outgoing. Yeah. Yeah. And Hunter, tell me what you think about this opening lick that goes into measure 116, the Madrato Assai Quasi Andante. The um, but 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 um, to exclamatory back to hesitant back to exclamatory and then he sneakily then fixes the character into someone who's a little more sneaky a little more deceptive so i wanted to know what you thought about that clarinet solo it leads into uh, the, where's it I, be right. I, believe, I believe that starts the b section starts the b section oh there it is um let me think about that where is it okay found it um I think, you know, he often uses woodwinds in a way that if they are the, the sneaky instruments, quote unquote. I mean, it's like you're not going to try to slip something in using a trombone. I mean, it's not going to it's not going to have the same effect. But no. if you can have something build from from something, you know, almost like where it comes out of the chaos, right, sneaks yeah. out there until, and you don't realize it's there until it arrives. And I feel like clarinet oboe flute he uses those in those kind of ways particularly as it approaches um b i think clarinet utilizes the niente really well in this and that it kind of like you said sneaks in from the texture mm -hmm. and pops into that that b section right it has the most yeah. potential for like softness of sound and transparency of all the yeah. instruments in my opinion I'm right gonna... and it all, and it has the ability as well to right have a large largely varied register which you know, like you said with the, with the change in coloration it can go through you know one if you shoot it up there it's going to stand out yeah i'm going to throw out a theory and y'all can spit that right back at me if y'all want to but i don't think that figure is the melody i don't 
because I don't really think that is until we get to the viola part in measure 117. Yeah. I think that's the melody. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I really, I, I have a hard feeling that that is the melody. And honestly, it feels more lyrical than what's actually happening in the woodwinds. You can fight me on it. Mm. I know I sound wrong. Well, no, it doesn't sound wrong, but I'd like to pose a <coughs> similar but opposing thought. Mm. What if it is both and they are two different characters that are having a conversation instead? That and the true. other woodwinds are simply embellishing the clarinet line because the clarinet goes on to do the first the of the beat da da dum all these little quips in. And the clarinet is the only one, um, well, I mean, the flute happens before the viola enters as well, right. but the clarinet one, I think, is meant to be more present than... Um... Mm. Yeah, definitely. But I'm kind of with you. I think that viola lick is definitely, um, like, especially with what it does in measure 120 as we start seeing these um, glisses and then the cello picks it up. I think that's oh, definitely... Yeah melodic material here i also wanted to throw out this hunter real quick which i think is really interesting because the melodies again are all based on chromatic scales and mm -hmm. arpeggios Scales. god you guys are so tired of me talking about that but no. I, think, I think that's tchaikovsky uses them a lot though and i mean it, it contributes to some of what is his sound i mean not only are they you know not only does he use these chromatic scales a lot but it's also when he uses the chromatics it's like the group is moving chromatically you know what i mean it's not just like i mean occasionally he has like little flutters here and there of, of various instruments using these little chromatic passages but like if you look at c right i mean it's just mm -hmm. for two whole bars everyone's going down all the way right and then right. later on it, it was it like four more, four bars later something like that it's mm -hmm. everybody you know or at least all the winds and oh, conversely, yeah, yeah. just prior to that, all the strings are going up. So, I mean, it's like he's a fan of this big um, group movement. So I think when someone doesn't move, like what you're saying, like the clarinet, when it doesn't move in unison, it's meant it's intended to stand out. So I suppose that sort of supports your theory that it could have been the melody. Also, here's another reason why it could also be the melody. If you all check out Measure 122. B -a -dee -a -da, a -da -dee -da -da. That melody is then translated into measure 132, 134 into the duets between the two violins. We go to Ben Sostenuto il Tempo Precedente. Ooh, and like then also they retake the first half of the other melody. But up, but up, but up, buddy, which I, I think is pretty cool just throwing mm -hmm. that out there and then we return to this sort of still sort of articulated hesitancy bum yeti you know and i said to hunter before you came on mary that this sounds so italian to me Hunter, <laughs> you, can, you can correct me if i'm wrong but that sound that that, that phrase that i just sang right out of an italian aria so it does yes yes so i you know you can fight me on that but i think that's true what's also interesting y'all is the way he transitions from this really happy sound 
to back to this really forced, ugly sound and really kind of frustrating sound that just kind of real brings us back. And then it just it, it just digresses for a really, really long time. And I really don't think we get back to a melody all the way. And actually, I don't really think we're all the way back in. It, it feels weird saying this, but um, we go to N, we go through all this stuff with more transitional material. But in a way, we really don't really get anywhere until we finally get to the uh, the section again. When And the A section almost really takes over and it almost kind of explodes. You know, one of my favorite parts in the... Uh, is the is the a prime section and you can't get more dramatic than that and we also know that tchaikovsky is a very successful ballet writer mm -hmm. uh, and it really does add to the dramaticism of this piece my favorite rhythm and it is so uh it's so cool it's later in the piece but when we get to the when we return to the a section is when the violins go it, it adds to this kind of really annoying nature but it's 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 it adds to that kind of cinematic quality which i think we're all like yes it's so good um and honestly that just gives me goosebumps every time and mm -hmm. if i can just kind of finish up before i let you guys we can finish talking about this movement which is a little bit about how um the way this thing ends too is it's so freaking cool and if y'all can sort of look what I'm looking at, I mean, again, we've returned to the B section. There's a more transition. It kind of repeats some of that same material. And one of my favorite sections uh, is actually at V. If you guys can find it, it's on page 57. It is this really beautiful uh, chorale section by the woodwinds. And it is so surprising because up until this point, we've had all of this crazy fanfare returning of the yeah you know it just kind of returns to that but we don't but we turn to this beautiful section and i honestly think yes maybe it is derived from that section we just talked about but man this corral is just so beautiful and then it just and then out of nowhere it just kind of flicks on the switch and goes and then we kind of finish out and 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 y'all you know you know me i love some beethoven so oh, yeah i'm saying <laughs> so i love beethoven and the ending of this sounds exactly like the end of nine of the first movement and and honestly it sounds so yes it, it kind of plays into the tragic uh um fate of Beethoven's music, and I think it's what he's basically trying to do at the end of this piece. And we end on that one single note with every single instrument playing the same exact note. So that is my ideal. What I think about this this movement in nutshell. Honestly, we go on these long journeys in this first movement all over the place our our emotions are high and low hunters screaming at some time you know <laughs> so i don't really know how to not feel super emotional about this piece but it honestly brings out a lot of really great aspects of of um of chike but chike really goes into italian arias he goes into beethoven symphonies i honestly feel like there are moments of this this person 
I think also that play homage to some of Mozart's simpler, beautiful music. So, yes. um, so that's what I think about this first movement. I'll let Hunter finish up his thoughts. Go ahead, Hunter. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of this particular section, you know, I was, I think that, and I'll make this comment later on when we get to the final movement, but it's very clear when he's finishing what he wants to say in a particular piece mm-hmm. um, or, or in a, even in a particular section. And yet there is a sense as it finishes, even though it sounds finite, it's not the end. Obviously, it's mm-hmm. the first movement. But I think he's really good at showing where the end is going to be and when it's not the end. So all the first three movements, obviously, are three out of four. So there's always something more to come. And yet... You know, if, if you didn't know any better, you could, it, with some people's music, you could play them by themselves, like each movement by themselves, and it would sound complete, it would sound finite. But with his, I feel like you need, there's something still, you know what I mean? You know you haven't reached the end of a, of a Tchaikovsky piece until you reach the end. Right. That exactly reminds me of a Haydn type, where Haydn would play, you guys know the, the clock, right? When that, that symphony, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Yep. And then the, mm. the so basically what Haydn did was he wrote it for the king who would fall asleep during his performances. And then when bah, 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 <laughs> the king would be like, Oh, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up here. Mm-hmm. So I almost feel like Tchaikovsky knows how to play to an audience because he, he is also a, a ballet um composer as well. Mary, your final thoughts about this movie. Oh yeah. Well, um in terms of at one point you were talking about um, all of the middle material where we deviate so many times mm. um, and explore all these different roads. And then he keeps bringing it back to that same fate motif. Mm. Um, it, it's just interesting to kind of look at it from an, an abstract perspective in the sense of, you know, fate is, is thought about so differently in so many different cultures. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, some people just don't even believe in it. So I, I just, I think that one thing Tchaikovsky is trying to say with this movement is that you can't look away. No, you can't. No, it's, um, it's impossible because you might at the end, Tchaikovsky might even know, he, he might even know what's going to happen to him because he knows, it almost feels like, like Shostakovich 50, 100 years later, mm-hmm. basically where Shasti knows if he does something wrong, it's his throat. He mm-hmm. is out of there because of Stalin. You know, not that we can compare 18th century policy to 19th century policy, because obviously there's a hundred years in between regimes. But honestly, if we think about Russian culture in the 1800s, we're kind of dicey. Uh, but, <laughs> but still harsh. And he's still living through all this atrocity and war. Um, and I think all of that is exactly why he hats he he tips his hat to so many different composers. Like you cannot play this movement as a horn player and not think of Beethoven Seven. You know, like all the dotted rhythms in it, it just screams Beethoven Seven. People will say you should practice your Chike Four to make Beethoven Seven better. Hmm. or short call you know um but i i do think that tchaikovsky i mean he did everything with full intention knowing how to play to an audience he 
made them think of Beethoven. He made them think of um, what uh, I agree with the Mozart that you brought up, Sean. Um, there's some Mozartian uh, sections of it, but he quickly will take that back into his Russian chaos eventually, you know, turn the page and, oh, we're doing something different. But you never I actually believe... realize when it changes. Sorry. I... I didn't mean... No, it's okay. I, I believe Stravinsky said it best when he said composers don't reuse, they steal. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Steal from so the best. They steal from the best, and I think Tchaikovsky did that. Um, and I think that's the best way to present material sometimes. And uh, mm -hmm. so, hey, y'all. So, we're going to talk about the second movement, the second mm -hmm. movement, Dante in Modo di Canzona. Hunter, do you like my Italian accent there? Oh, it was very nice. Very proving. Okay, awesome. Um, what's interesting about this movement, y'all, is that <laughs> what's really interesting about this movement, we are in the key of D flat major. However, we are in B-flat Aeolian, and I will say why. Because uh, he reuses A-flat as a natural tendency to then... He, he wouldn't need to write it in B-flat minor if he did, but um, I think what makes it interesting is, yes, it is in D-flat major, but I honestly do think it is in B-flat, but... Well, actually, it could be, it could be just B flat minor, um, but uh, this is what I'm going to say about this movement, which is this: the first measure is a pickup to the first measure. I don't think the first measure starts until measure two. I don't think that is. I think it's a phrase elision. Y'all can again throw any kind of tomatoes at me, but I don't think that's the beginning of the melody. I think the beginning of the melody is because I believe that later on that is actually where we start. Um, hmm. so, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, mostly because of the the articulation of the oboe during the solo and where the lifts are placed i think he was i mean there's a sort of symmetrical nature to some of these phrases there's there's three pickups in oboe and then if, if the melody were to start on the downbeat i agree with you with direction there that it does go to the lift but i still think there's an argument to be made for those three notes being part of the melody i don't know because here's what's interesting about it the music doesn't begin until b2 and i think that if you if he was going to write that out i honestly think he would have utilized beat one if he's going to utilize the and of one that's a discussion for it almost being an elision into the first beat. Oh, can you make the argument that? But couldn't you take something like the Star Spangled Banner and couldn't you say, well, you you don't start directly on one for that, and it's still well, technically a, part of the melody. What is that called? What's that called in music? It's not a. That is a pickup, Sean. I know, I know. There's, <laughs> there's like a. I know, I know that. Anacrusis. 
Yes, that's it. That I believe that that is what that is called. I believe that those three notes are an anacrusis to the downbeat of beat two, and yes. beat, beat beat one of that bar of measure two is the beginning of the piece. I believe oh. that yes, and I believe that the anacrusis starts right before that, but then we start right in the downbeat. So the melody, in my opinion, starts on the A B flat F natural. I see what you mean. That makes some sense because, it, you know, he's starting on the flat three of the key. Right. You know, flat minor here. And um, where he utilizes that that natural seventh and it's the first note. Mm -hmm. And then it's followed by a fifth. We come back to the opening. Ba, 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 mm. ba, ba. That, um, that minor relation of the first measure, it's echoed in this melody some. I hadn't realized that until you brought that up. You know what's also interesting too is, is something really interesting, which is also trying to find the circles of the phrases within these phrases. That thing, the, the passage itself is unusual because it's it's written in 2-4, right? So it's written in a, um, yeah. uh, it's not written in compound meter, and therefore it's, he's constantly adding these, tri I don't know, not triplets, but just the groupings of three, make it seem almost like hemiola-ish, where it's yeah. the three overlaid over two, but it's not mm. always three, because sometimes it's two eighth notes, so it's like a bizarre off-kilter feel. It's yes, another exactly. case of obscuring the time. Oh, yes, very much yeah. so. That's right. But great connection, Mary. That's awesome. Yeah, and bringing then, it back around. Yeah, he well, he sticks the strings on downbeats, and they're they're pitched too. Right. So they're just meant to be like little flakes on top of the solo. They're, he's not really trying to ground it in time. He's showing yeah. the existence of time under it, but he's not he's not having them downbow with her. Yeah. Hunter, you said something really interesting about oboe when we talked about Brandenburg and its role and its timbre. Do you remember what you might have said about that, like the role that oboe plays in an, in an orchestra? I don't know. What did I say that was so interesting? You were so interesting. You, you had said that the timbre matches the, the sense of loss or oh, sense of uh, yeah. Do you remember what you said? Yeah. Well, I remember us talking about it. Yeah. I mean, the the timbre of the oboe. I think it's it's very rarely ever used for, I think, conveying cheerfulness. You know what I mean? I mean, not to say that it can't play brightly and that it can't play with spirit. It's just, I think, so often the timbre that it emits in opposition to the clarinet specifically, um, mm -hmm. or the flute. If you had to pick one of the, you know, if you had to pick one of those three to convey a sense of, of joy. It's certain, I don't think it's going to be the oboe. Um, and I think that when one wants to convey this deep, there's something about the oboe I think that reaches very deeply. And I don't know if it's physically from the fact that the two reeds creates a different harmonic sound. Um, I don't know if that like deepens the tone at all. Um, I, I'm not really sure about the, um, the, the, what do you call it? I, I don't know the scientific characteristics of the sound that it produces, which might be a cause for that. But yeah, I think that his way of, of 
adding to the sense of like he's he's longing to be known and in a different way now right now he's like lamenting right? right it's no longer he's screaming at the rooftops from with the bells at the beginning it's now he's trying to convey that you know i have your attention now listen to my message right yeah so this is lamenting in the beginning i am i definitely think so okay yeah i think so too you know y'all i'm going to try to finish this up real quick but i i think what's interesting about this movement is the the phrasing is really honestly different and so so tight sometimes it's it's so different and something inter interesting about the piece that i find is the use of his chromatic language that has definitely developed since his first symphony and if y'all can take a look at um almost i believe is measure 54 that's on page 68 if you want to take a look at what i'm saying so we do a flat then we go to d natural c sharp and then c natural which is crazy but i believe that the c natural brings us back to an a flat sound um but we actually don't actually what's interesting is we get this sound of c major and then it and he then he reuses that repurposes that c to be the third of an a a, a flat major chord which is actually really interesting and he continues with all this other processing too like he he adds in uh different notation he adds in different uh figures that almost add as background figures and y'all i don't know about you the b section was hella boring very boring Aww. I, I i don't really again i'm very picky and y'all know this about me but it almost feels like there's not a lot there it feels very underwhelming but also overwhelming where some parts are kind of fighting over other parts and it doesn't really feel like it's fitting a certain style but i feel it's a little bit of a miss but i find that his second movements aren't always on top of things until we get to five but um i also want to just say which is interesting too is um when we get to the tempo one and we return to tempo one and this is measure 2022 measure 199 uh we return to that falling so he kind of sneaks that in there very craftily and uses that and then I believe we just kind of end like he always does in that he kind of chops up the melody and then finishes up the piece in this very beautiful fashion with the nice uh, pizzicato by the lower strings. And we get some Italian arias back in uh, two, I think, which then lends us the Mozartian sound, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, so any thoughts about the second movement, you to finish off this piece? Hunter? Mary? Oh, Mary, I'll, Mary, go ahead, Mary. My bad. I'll go first, yeah. yeah well, sure. there's, um, I just want to look at real quick. Um, sure. mm -hmm. So this second section, yeah, it's a little boring in some ways, but mm. I think what he's working through here, um, it, it's hard to put into words because I, I i think that this section is more of a dance than the first one but it's not meant to be a happy dance necessarily mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
it has a two-step feel sounds like a sounds like a russian folk song yeah there's something in there yeah um but i i just want to look at this is after d about 16 bars measure like 150 151 you start seeing the addition of these triplets throughout um a very square melody so far and um as a i mean eventually he um he's been using it chromatically the triplets are flying through the woodwinds often um up until about 165 and then um we return to a square melody but the um the horns actually and oboes and clarinets they just blare on these triplets on a single note beep bop beep beep bop beep beep and they trade it back and forth with trumpets mm. and flutes and um, I think that whole section is it, you know, he's kind of, he's referencing himself later mm. um, with how he works with rhythm. But I do think in some ways that this section might have been the one that he worked through the least of his entire symphony. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the neglected stepchild. I knew yeah. it. I knew um, it, Mary. I knew it. But at the same time, like he does some really beautiful things. Like the opening oboe solo is, I've been listening to it since I was like two. I, I just, I love the sound. And, um, you know, there's some, there are some really beautiful things that Trike does. And even in this movement, but there are always these spots where you can kind of look at it and think that he stuck a bow on it. And we've talked about that before in Tchaikovsky symphonies. Um, I think in three, there was a movement that we felt was kind of the forgotten child. Um, you know, and so I think it's just interesting to recognize, um, you know, why we feel that way sometimes. Because, um, you know, music, it, it affects people so many different ways. At what point, why is it making us reference um, a point of boredom? even though he's doing so many, like there's so many accidentals in this movement compared to the other ones. Oh my um, God. To be honest. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's just, it's an, an interesting thought to see how he plays with rhythm through this one section. Yeah. And it's more about phrasing in his other sections of this movement. Right. Hunter. So, I mean, the biggest thing that I noticed about this particular section was, I mean, the you mentioned the chromatic movement earlier. I, I don't know if it's like page 109. I don't know. I don't think we have the same document, but I wonder if I can share my screen real quick. Not for any listening, but just for... Uh, Pointing out the obvious. No, I'm kidding. Uh, hang on. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Here's, this is it? Let's see. Start sharing. Uh, you see it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I took a I took a clipping of it. So this particular line here, which goes from I, again, I don't have any measure numbers, but it's it's like page one hundred nine ish in the document that I yeah. have. But I really like this particular pattern starting from like here at the end of this page into here. It, there's some accidental usage. It's not necessarily chromatic, but it's accidental usage, which Tchaikovsky does a lot. 
um, where he'll just he'll bring things up using accidentals and gives it the sense of lifting and building, which I think how he builds some suspense. I mean, that's the thing that I most noted in this particular, um, what do you call it, in this particular movement. Uh, I don't know if that stood out to you because you don't like the movement, but <laughs> I'll just stop sharing that. Uh, I totally agree. He he definitely mm. layers a lot of his transitions when he's yeah. starting mm. to work towards something new. Mm. Tchaikovsky has a particular treatment that we're starting to see patterns of. Right. Mm -hmm. And he also, I think, likes in, in a very uh, film-like fashion, I think he also likes these woodwind embellishments that's over the top of things that flutes and clarinets do they're like little the ones sean was going to da -da 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 but sometimes they're used over something that's happening and i almost think it strikes me as like early impressionism where mm. Ooh, uh, yeah. you know what i mean it's like he's not specifically trying to convey like the sense of nature but it is what he's conveying a lot of his works are meant to embody the sense of nature to give the impression of nature without specifically being like program music. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I really, that resonates. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not no, losing my mind. That's right. No. Um, Hunter, would you like to take a break, my friend? Sure. And having said that, shall I read our little announcement? Absolutely, my friend. Sure. So we're going to take our quick little break, sponsored by our friends at Anchor. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us. And you'll find our social media, our handles and such, and ways that you can contribute to this podcast. So without further ado, we'll take a quick break and be back with movement number three, Scherzo Pizzicato Ostinato. Okay, and we're back, and like Hunter graciously said earlier, we're going to talk about the scherzo pizzicato astanato. Something that I really like about this section, y'all, is it is all over the damn place. And I think that's <laughs> really is. cool. You know, this section, not that, you know, Britain came before um, Tchaikovsky at all, but it kind of reminded me of the young person's guide to the orchestra it definitely highlights certain sections of players. So you have the strings that started out playing pizzicato. And y'all, I love the sound of pizzicato. It is so freaking cool. It just It's the way that they just kind of like rip it off the, um, the string. It's just so cool. And I, I just love how you can just go from peaceful and so happy to so serious, you know, which I think is actually really, really cool. And there is a really, there's actually a really interesting fine line in in pizzicato where you can go from almost silly to almost like super serious. You guys know what I'm trying to say there? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, which I think is actually really cool about this opening section. And then my favorite thing, Hunter, uh -huh. is that the oboe finally, finally gets a really happy sound, and the oboe comes in guns a blazing. It's loud. It's really loud and so like so focused, you know. Uh -huh. it's so loud. So again, like in that section, we go from strings playing 
kind of again kind of waffling in between the seriousness and the silliness and then we sort of switch over to this really beautiful sounding um wind section guys this is so freaking cool i'm not sure if y'all enjoyed this as much as i did but i loved hearing 30 second notes uh, uh especially when you got the um the uh you got the kettle flute on top which is the notation there but it's the piccolo flute on top of there and then and then out of nowhere the brass comes in and then the flute just has to cut oh sorry oh my god hunter rudely cuts us off and goes <laughs> while the brass is continuing to play through this phrase and it's 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 so cool because there's almost then a conversation between the woodwinds and the brass which i think is really cool and then of course we end the symphony by letting the strings play out a little more there's a little bit of um, conversation that ends up between the strings and the winds as Hunter beautifully mentioned within that first and second movement we have, have this sort of repetition they're kind of basically playing the same rhythms and then everything kind of echoes each other and then the piece kind of ends in a very Fabergé egg happening I kind of wrap, recapped my thoughts on this movement. It wasn't a very long movement. I believe it's almost like five minutes, which is a record for Tchaikovsky. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, Mary, I'm going to throw it over to you. What do you think about oh. this? Movement? Well, thanks for that. Um, well, uh, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about liking this movement so much, because as you spoke, I realized how much similarity it has to the second movement. Um, like, wow. It, okay. What a dig. No, no, no. I'll get there. <laughs> okay. okay okay all right all right i mean you you put it perfectly this whole pizzicato opening is one of my it's one of my favorite tchaikovsky moments to be honest and i'm oh, not yeah. a string, string player at all it it just it runs itself and mm. um i got the chance to uh substitute in the orchestra here this um past week before their concert and they were playing Chike four and but for this movement the whole string section because the entire movement is pits they make a point to put their bows in their laps together. Mm. And yeah. the bases, um, they have to put their, their bow on the floor or if mm. they have a, a carrier on their instrument because they cannot put them on the stands because they have to flip pages so fast. Right. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, it's, it's just such a neat little thing and it keeps going constant motion, which is another um, yeah. pattern of Tchaikovsky. And then you're right, like the oboe just completely barrels down the door um, with this really loud, you know, dance-like figure. And then we see um, another one of my favorite Tchaikovsky moments, this little woodwind quintet develop um, over the oh, course. Yeah. You know, it, that's all it is. It's just woodwinds. And mm. like the oboe drones on this A at the key change. And then um, the strings, they, they cadence. Um, uh, on dominant right before they kick off the new melody mm. um, and so it, it's just it's interesting the the light he's putting in and it's this section that I find similarity to the middle section of the second movement which is why I, I bit you a second ago Sean um, because this second like section is like a cooler version of mm. the dance that he had going in the second movement it's more embellished it's more out there it's bolder, 
And in the second movement, he started it with this soft oboe solo and bookended it like that. And in this movement, what he's done is um, he's bookended it with quiet strings. So he's doing the same thing. In a way, he's written two scherzos as his middle mm. movements to this piece. Yeah. Because of how many jokes he's playing in some ways. Um, and then, you know, at, at, um, after that wooden quintet moment, um, he takes the, the brass and allows them to, to play a little bit. Um, and it, it's interesting that he has this rhythmic motive going on for eight bars and then interrupts it with the same material that just appeared. Yeah. So he, he's paused what he was doing. So it, it, it's just, I don't know, this whole movement, it screams scherzo to me, except it's not in um, compound time, really. But um, it, his use of interjection later on, like um, I'm talking after G, um, where we yeah. see... Um, I, I haven't gone back and analyzed it, but I'm, I'm willing to bet some of these woodwind interjections are um, references to the first section, the pizzicato. Um, and um, the strings get to do like four notes every now and then. So he's taking the, the spotlight and moving it intensely during this whole section. So it's neat right. to see how the, the timbre will change. And then it, it ends really incons inconspicuously for the most part, a lot like it began, very cyclical. Mm -hmm. And Mary, just to echo that fact, you said with the echoing, right at I, you know, he kind of separates mm -hmm. that a little bit by a bar, and then we can finish out the phrase with the. Uh, sorry, Hunter. What else you got about this third movie, my friend? So I have, um, you know, it's interesting that when uh, at the beginning, or rather earlier in the piece, we talked about how like the lack of strings at the very beginning gives it almost a very non-Tchaikovskian sound. And yet in this section, it's only at the beginning strings. And yet I still think it has an unusually non-Tchaikovskian sound. The pizzicato uh, is so unusual for him in a lot of his works that it's almost a little jarring to hear. You're like, is this El Tchaikovsky? And then the minute that the winds re-enter, it brings it back again. So I feel like it, it's also meant to, well, not that it was meant to, but I feel like what it has come to show is that his sound necessitates the combination of, like, which he's so good at, the combination of strings and winds. Um, and what's interesting also is that it's the shortest of the movements. Um, so I, he doesn't need that long to get his point across. Like, it's like, he's like, okay, done. Uh, right. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I've made it. I've made the transition finished. Yeah. Turn <laughs> in my homework. It's all over. Basically. Um, Sorry, so go ahead, Mary. I'm, I'm I have bad. one more little thing about three, and then we can move to four if you want. Yeah, sure. What do you got? Yeah, yeah. so um, I, it's just a notation thing. I, I didn't realize it um, until now, but, I mean, when the brass enter, they're notated as 16th notes with a bunch of rests to insinuate the oh, length of the pitch. But because the strings are pizzicato, 
their part could be written the same way as the brass part because the length they are playing is actually shorter than the eighth note, you know, resonance aside, depending on the hall. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it's just interesting to see that dichotomy appear because he, he doesn't have to write 16. So it's not going to change how they pluck the string. Right. You know, but um, as a conductor, um, I would think that those lengths should be equal, even though they're notated differently. So it's just a thought. Mm, right. But so um, y'all, no, sorry, sorry. What do you want to say, Mary? No, I was going to say fourth movement. Yeah, finale. Um, everybody knows that I have problems with fourth movements. Um, some would say that. Um, no, uh, this one, this one really had me listening more than I did typing, y'all. Um, and I'll just say my my couple of pieces. I know I've talked a lot in this podcast, so I'll let y'all talk more at the ending of this piece. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll just I'll just say the the one thing, which is, um. This piece, the fourth movement, you know, in my head is very straightforward. There's not a lot of surprises, except for the random entrances of the fate motif. Um, yes. But overall, I feel like we add two instruments. I'm not sure if you all know, but we add two instruments to this section. We have the triangle gel and the becken u gran trommel, which is just you know, more percussion. Uh, more drums and uh, gr- like big. Uh, uh, what's the word for that? The uh, the big bass drum. Uh, so, which I think is interesting. So we add that. There's more scales. Hunter says woohoo, woo, uh, and uh, that's just uh, what I think about this movement. It's very similar to a lot of other things that we've heard before. Um, very repetitive within phrases. Um, there's a lot of 16th notes that go back and forth that is very tchaikovsky in ish um and yeah so y'all i'll let y'all finish the the conversation on this uh hunter i'll let you start go ahead buddy sure well i'd like to take a moment to congratulate tchaikovsky on waking the dead um (laughs) so i think he he woke people who hadn't even died yet um I was, I was sitting there listening to it, and it was like, you know, the other movement, I mean, it's not particularly loud, but it's not soft either. And then this comes in, and I was like, whoa, yeah. Um, it certainly grabs your attention, right? I feel like that's, that's his, his hook for this. Um, and dramatic tempo increase, almost to the point where it's, like, frantic. And, I mean, I personally liked it. I mean, I'm not as picky as with my fourth movements as you, Sean, but that's okay. Um, it's what we love about you. The biggest thing that I noted other than the volume and the, and the dynamics is that I really liked in section B, there's this contrast between, um, these more drawn out notes that the oboe and the bassoon have versus the 16th note string pattern underneath it. So Mm -hmm. the, the strings are used to keep the motion going while the, the, um, more, I wouldn't call it sustenuto, but the more legatoed passage of the upper woodwinds, or, or just the woodwinds, I guess, not upper, because it's bassoon. But their contrast makes it for an interesting feel because you feel like it should be going faster than it is because they're moving, the strings are moving really fast, but the oboe and the bassoon are almost holding you back 
from really moving with the rest of it. You know what I mean? It's it's almost optical illusion-y because you are still moving that fast. The tempo hasn't changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mary? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I agree. The Tchaikovsky finales, it's like he sets um it, it's like the start of a race. Like the tempo just yeah. goes. Um and he always announces it like the gunshot at the beginning of a race. <laughs> you know, he's got this giant brass cord blowing down the doors of, you know, of death right mm-hmm. in the first bar. And he just goes. Um, and it's interesting because really there's only like one or two main melodies to this entire movement. Um at least in my opinion, like true melodic material, because so much of it can be chalked under transitional. Yeah. Um, because yeah. he'll just have sections where he, he goes and he's he's come so far away from what he first presented mm-hmm. that there's no um, divisions in what he's doing often. So I, I think that's why I say it's not necessarily rich in melodic content. There's a lot of, you know, fast-paced 16ths and busy stuff, and it's more about the rush of time towards its end in some ways. Um, right. So I guess a couple things I wanted to note with this movement. Um, mm. If you just take, uh, like, if you were to go through the, the whole fourth movement and just highlight every time that you, you see that ba-ba-ba-ba-bee-ba-ba-bee-bum motif in here, mm-hmm. Um, every single time it's in here, um, the articulation and the treatment of it, it changes so many different times. And that's one question I'd like to ask Tchaikovsky if he were alive is what do those differences in expression mean? Or was he doing it just to do something different, even though he's using the same material? Well, we know we only need to play this piece to wake him up to ask him. (laughs) That was a good one. But um, yeah, let's see. I, I think I might have one more thing. Let me let me page through. Oh, um, I mean, I like playing this movement. It's a lot of fun for horn, um, and especially like there's this one figure that comes up a couple times, and I think it's his answer to the downwards um minor scale that appears in the uh, fate motif. Bobby, 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 Bobby. Um, I think so. This is measure um, 56, uh, one, two, three, 55, 56 in the fourth movement. Um, and I think my page numbers are different from yours. But um, you see this, uh, it's a fortissimo pickup in all of the brass voices. Bumpy, Bobby, 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 you know. Um, and I think, because right before it, he's been doing um, triplet runs in the strings and the woodwinds um, for a few bars. And so all of a sudden, he's way back in duple time. And the hardest part in those bars is to not rush them because the strings have 16th notes going over top of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as making sure all of the notes are um balanced the same you don't want the higher notes to pop out with that that's a comment we get a lot but um that comes in occasionally and so i think that's another thing that um i would file under melodic material um 
almost it, it's it's transitional material that could act as melody because he, mm. he's using it to progress forward and and add more to the ends of phrases um mm. add more intensity moving forward so yeah i mean finales are finales as we know chike finales are what they are and um sean is right the um reappearance of the fate motive in the middle of it mm. is just like the i mean i've referenced the gates of hell several times but it's like mm. they're opening at that point but mm -hmm. they That's are wakes wakes and death. it makes you think like was that him uh yeah, I, I don't want to say like predicting his own fate, but like, did he think that's where he was going? Like, was it coming for him? Was he concerned or was he trying to fend it off? Like, you, you know, what was going through his head? Yeah, I, I honestly, all the questions we would ask, right? Exactly. I, I think he just wanted to have us play it one more time, to be honest. And not mm -hmm. only does, mind you, uh, the the first time he brings the fate motive back the the horn part is different with the ending where we we hold that unison um octave chord for uh he adds a couple extra bars to it this time around um and then he's got a little quip um the soli over top of the timpani at the tempo one um or uh, before the tempo one this is like measure 215 um those two bars are like the scariest of the entire symphony, at least. <laughs> Strike fear into the hearts. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just, and that bar, mind you, is, is one of the only spots where he adds that um, return back to root after moving to um, the third. And he lets that root hang there at the end of it, even though it's appeared differently every other time before this, and then he creates total silence on the downbeat of the next bar. So it's, it's just, it's a really neat effect how he treats that middle section, and then from tempo one all out, it's it's normal Tchaikovsky again. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so, so, maybe do you want to say something else? Um, I don't know. The only other thing, like, when we think about because we've said, you know, it's Tchaikovsky. It's the finale. I, it mm -hmm. makes you want to look through and see what things are different. So the other spot, I, you know, that comes to mind is um, it's just a couple bars. And it's, um, I'm looking at, let's see, what measure? It's after H, um, about 10 bars or so. And all of a sudden, the, the movement you have is all on the offbeats. Ba 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 ba, and the piccolo and the upper strings have these runs up to them, and those are offset so that the runs end on downbeats. So I think that's one pretty cool little transition he's built in here, but he only does it that right. one time, and then he finds a quick yeah. way to end it. Well, y'all, it is always a pleasure to talk symphonies, especially Tchaikovsky Four. Always a pleasure to talk to my friend Hunter, my friend Mary. My name is Sean Okunas, and uh, we'll see you in the outro. So, see you later. And you've reached the end of our Tchaikovsky 4 podcast. Thank you for being here. And, you know, we always have to thank the guy who created it. So, thank you, Tchaikovsky, for putting a really bold foot forward with... 
um, this absolute masterpiece. Um, so many people will tell me their favorite Tchaikovsky is Tchaikovsky 4. So, um, and we hope we didn't offend you too much as you, you sit in your grave, but thank you for <laughs> wonderful work. I know that was horrible, but you know, it, it, it comes into all these conversations when we talk about intent behind composers. So, mm -hmm. but I love these, these Tchaikovsky uh, casts we've been doing. What are your final thoughts, Hunter? Yeah, you know, I, Tchaikovsky's always been a favorite of mine. I, I, some of my first introduction to classical music has been through, um, you know, Tchaikovsky's ballet suites, um, or, or the, yeah, I would say that like suites, the parsed down versions of it was how I was first introduced to it. So he's always been at the forefront. And then as I got older, looking more into his stuff like his symphonies and the larger uh, ballet works. Um, so his influence on my own personal musical tastes cannot be denied. So it's fun to sort of get the idea, get the chance to uh, look a little closer into his works. Sean? Yeah, no. I thought that a, a music can be emotional. Um, yes, uh, Tchaikovsky said it was. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think something about his music that I always take with me is, is how personal and how politically advanced his music is and how honest it can be sometimes. And we've really talked about one, two, three at quite a length, and we can really see the jump that he made from three to four. Um, was actually pretty big. I'm not sure if you all feel the same way, but I feel like he really made strides in that, in that second section of his career, writing from going from one, two, three to four, five, six. So um, excited to get to five because five is my personal favorite. Well, um, mine too. Uh, so we'll get to that and we'll talk about it later. And then I want to say thank you to my friend Hunter and my friend Mary. My name, of course, is Sean Kunis. I'm Mary Haddix Hermans. And my name is Hunter Sagona, and we will see you next time. So remember to keep listening to what you love. <laughs>